Welcome to Common Ground Berlin. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Today I get to fangirl over my favorite comedian. He is the author of I'm Not a Terrorist, But I've Played One on TV, Memoirs of a Middle Eastern Funny Man. You may have also seen him on the big screen or in the television series Superior Donuts. Of course, I'm talking about Maz Jobrani, who is coming to Germany this month for the first time ever. I first saw Maz perform in California in 2007. Here's one of his routines from back then that still cracks me up. The Iranians don't even say they're Iranian. Iranians say they're Persian. Iranians, we say we are Persian. You know, it sounds nicer and friendlier. We even smile. When we say we're Persian, we smile. I am Persian. I am Persian. I, I am not dangerous. I am Persian. I am Persian like the cat. Like the rug, hello. Rug, colorful, handwoven. If you want to catch one of his shows in Germany, he is appearing in Frankfurt on September 13th, in Cologne on September 14th, in Berlin on September 23rd, and in Hamburg on September 24th. I interviewed Maz on Zoom last week, and my first question, of course, was why did it take him so long to come to Germany? <laughs> You know, what's interesting is I, in all honesty, when I first started doing stand-up comedy, I really did not know how far it was going to take me. Because back in the day, when I was a kid and I was a big fan of uh, Eddie Murphy, and then there was all the other, you know, the Seinfelds, the Robin Williams, all those guys. It used to be, I think, in the 80s, they would tour the United States. They would go to Cleveland. They would go to Detroit. They would go all over the U.S. Now it's truly worldwide. And I think a big part of that has to do with YouTube. A big part of that has to just do with the ease of being able to travel. And a big part of that has to do with how American stand-up has had an effect on the rest of the world. So there's comedians in Jakarta and there's comedians in um, Saudi Arabia and there's comedians, you name it, they're there. So in 2008 was the first time that I did my first European tour. And again, I didn't know much about the rest of the world and their um, efficiency, uh, proficiency, I should say, in English. And come to find out, the Scandinavian countries speak English very well and they understand it very well. And like you said, I would think to myself, well, what about Germany? Shouldn't we start in Germany? And the promoters would say, well, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, the general population speaks their language, but they are not as proficient in English as you will find in Sweden and Norway and even Holland and those places. And I guess part of that was from what some of the locals told me is when they would watch American programs, they would hear it in English with subtitles as opposed to having it dubbed. And so they became big fans. And every time I go to Scandinavian countries to do shows, I've been there several times. I even shot one of my specials in Stockholm. When I would announce it, inevitably, there would always be a handful of people emailing me from somewhere in Germany like, what about Berlin? What about Cologne? And I was like, the promoter is saying you don't speak English well enough. I'm not coming. <laughs> you know, so, so this time around, they said, look, we've broken into these markets and it's nice to do that and it's great. And funny enough, though, the fact that I'm also Iranian-American and I speak Persian as well, and as you know, there's a lot of Iranians who are now living in Germany, I do get maybe at least four or five times a week, I'll get an email from somebody or a message from somebody going, so are the shows in Persian or in English? 
And I'm like, it's all in English. Bring your colleagues. They'll understand. So it's been an interesting experience. So are you nervous about performing in Germany, which of course has a reputation of not being funny, which let me just say that's an unjustified reputation. We actually did a show <laughs> about German humor and there's quite a bit of German humor here, but does it make you sort of think about how you're going to approach this crowd? Look, coming from the background of an Iranian who grew up in America and having a lot of American friends who didn't know we had a sense of humor. And yet when I was in the culture, whenever I would be my parents would take me to a party or, or wherever they would take me. There was an adult event and I would see them always going into a corner and telling jokes. Humor is big in the Iranian culture, but Americans had no idea. So similarly, I think every culture has humor and everywhere, especially if you're coming to a comedy show, you're going to be there to laugh. So I'm looking forward and I think that people will be there. They, you know, I think there's a, there's a culture of stand-up comedy, by the way. But this is interesting because I've had this... The experience I had, I think, was in a small city. I believe it was in Holland. It might have been Norway, but I believe it was in Holland on one of my tours where I was doing my show and the audience was smiling and they were clapping and they seemed to be enjoying it, but they weren't laughing. And then afterwards, I was like, oh, gosh, like that didn't go well. And then in the meet and greet, people were coming up going, that was the best night of my life. I was dying. And I was like, well, why weren't you laughing? Because in their mind, they were at a show, like they were at a play. They did not have the culture of stand-up in their mind yet. And so it takes time, I think. But I know there's been German stand-ups, and I know that people have been accustomed to now going or watching comedy. So I'm hoping that it will go well. And I'm sure there'll be... Listen, no matter what I say and do, no matter how many times I say the show's in English, there's going to be someone who brings their Iranian grandfather who doesn't speak any English, and this poor guy's going to be sitting there smiling at me politely the whole show... And that becomes part of the fun, too, to turn around and go, excuse me, sir, have you understood a word I've said? And the poor guy's like, no. And I'm like, oh, God. (laughs) So I'm not nervous. I'm excited. It was 15 years ago when my husband, Eric, and I first saw you in San Francisco during the Axis of Evil tour, when you were on tour with fellow comedians of Middle Eastern descent, and I think an Egyptian was with you as well. I'd never seen anything quite like it, and, and frankly, my stomach was aching from laughing so hard. I wonder, do you have a favorite skit from that tour or one that you still use? Well, I definitely don't use any more jokes from there because that would be the death of a comedian. If I'm using jokes from 15 years ago, then Soraya, I'm not doing my job. Oh, but Um, I don't know, the Persian with the meow, Persian, you know, I mean, that's a great joke. No, no more? I know, but you know, here's the thing. So comedians and musicians, there's a difference. So musician does a classic song or one of their top songs they go on tour, if they don't play that classic song 10 years down the line, the audience is going to be upset. What? It was all new material. The comedians are exact opposite. If you do a joke from back in the day, people are going to go, oh, it was all old material. And I always say a joke is funniest the first time because you don't see the punchline coming. That's the whole point, right? I mean, even the term punchline, I think it's like a punch, right? It's like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Once you know it's coming... And, and I've, I've experienced this as a fan, by the way. I was a fan of comedy before I was an actual comedian. And uh, there was a comedian who is now a friend of mine, Dom Herrera, whom I love. And I think the first time I saw him, I was like on the floor. I, I couldn't get enough. I was like, why is he ending an hour in? Please keep going. And then I would tell my friends, you got to see this guy. You got to see this. And we'd go. But the second time I'm watching it, I'm not even watching him. I'm watching them watch him because I want to see if they feel the same thing I feel. But eventually, you know, you want to hear new stuff. And so that's the same now on this end as a comedian. First of all, 
I know the audience wants to hear new stuff. Secondly, I want to talk about new stuff because the fact is my life evolves. And so, you know, I have jokes, for example, from when my kids were babies. And sometimes I go, you know, especially now with social media, you go and you look at your old stuff and you go, oh, throwback Thursday, flashback Friday. Here's a joke I did. I used to do this joke. I was telling my daughter about this. The joke came off of if you have a baby, um, however you decide to put them to sleep, get used to it because babies love routine. And I say with my daughter, our second child, we messed up because the way we would put her to sleep is every night we would sing to her turn on a wave machine and give her a massage. And so I said, every night at eight o'clock, it was like a spa treatment. She would show up in her bathrobe, be like, I'm ready for my Swedish, you know? And then you would start singing to her and you'd realize you don't know that many songs. You sing the same song and it goes on and on and on. But now my daughter's 11 years old. So for me to do that joke live, it's just not gonna work. Unless, sorry, once in a while what'll happen is if I'm doing what's considered like a corporate event where it's like, you know, a Christmas party or it's a company party or something like that. And let's say I'm talking to somebody and, and I go, Who, who's got kids? And they raise their hand. I go, how old? And they go, oh, my kid's one year old. Sometimes my mind will go, oh, use that old joke for this situation because it's not my show. It's a show for them. And this is right there in person. So I don't use any of those jokes from back then. But the Persian cat joke was like the first joke that kind of put me on the map within the Persian community and that kind of became like a little calling card for me for a few years, but I've, I don't do it anymore. The Axis of Evil tour, which is named for George W. Bush's phrase for Iran, Iraq, and North Korea, wasn't just about insider jokes for those of us who grew up Middle Eastern or lived there. It also educated non-Middle Easterners about Persians and Arabs, like in this skit. And then my American friends go, well, how can we tell you apart? How can we? And I go, well, it's in the accent. It's in the accent. Iranians, when Iranians speak, they talk a lot of slow. Iranians talk like this. <laughs> Iranians talk like this. We talk very slow. Like, you know, maybe we just shot some heroin. We're falling asleep. How are you? How are you? I am Iranian. How are you? How are you? It's Iranian. Yet in an interview that you did last year with the Emirates newspaper, The National, you said you don't think the tour would cut it in the U.S. today. Why not? I think maybe they misunderstood. I don't think I necessarily said it wouldn't cut it today. I think we have all evolved and moved on as a comedian. That said, you know, me, Ahmed, it was me, Ahmed Ahmed, who was the Egyptian, Aaron Cater, who was the Palestinian, and Dino Bidala was the fourth guy who's also Palestinian. We did a reunion show just a few months back, and people came out and they were excited because the truth is, that tour, because it was the first time you were seeing a handful of comedians from that part of the world that were Middle Eastern or Muslim. And up until we did it, so so the history a little bit is Mitzi Shore, who was the owner of the comedy store, she had put us together in the year 2000 because she had this epiphany that there was going to be a need for a positive voice for Muslims and Middle Easterners in the near future. This is before September 11th. And she put us together, called it the Arabian Nights. And as you know, Iranians aren't Arabs. So they would come to our shows. They'd be like, I really enjoyed the show, but you know, we are not Arab. And I was like, I know, I didn't name it. The lady did. So eventually me, Ahmed, and Aaron took over and we named it Axis of Evil. We felt that that was a little more of an edgy title. 
And when we were doing the tour, it was during the Bush administration, the Iraq war, Afghanistan, all that. It was very relevant at the time. And I think our community, it's almost like they'd been waiting for us because there hadn't been anybody from these backgrounds at that stand up. You had, you know, African-American, you had Latino, you had male, female, you had all kinds of perspectives, but you didn't have our perspectives being told on stage. And so when we came out, we garnered so much attention. We were in the New York Times. We were in Time Magazine. We were in Playboy. It was like all over the place. And we even took it to the Middle East and performed for the people of the Middle East. And they were embracing it, and it was great. Now, here we are in 2022, and sure, those issues still exist. You know, there's still Islamophobia. There's still a lot of that stuff. But as we know, the world that we're living in now, the biggest threat to America are Americans, right? Um we just went through a pandemic, and I'd be lying if I were to say, oh, I still don't do jokes that relate to my background on stage, because I do still have jokes that relate to my background, but there's so much more to talk about, and so it evolves. I just actually recorded a special at the Comedy Store, which is the club that I came up in, and I'm uh, hoping to distribute that in the very near future. That had a lot of material, like I said, about the pandemic, because it's been two years of all of us around the world experiencing what we experienced. Uh, it had material about my family. It had material about some politics. And yeah, I think that's what's on my mind. You talk about what's on your mind, really. Speaking of politics, you are a Berkeley grad who was working on a politics PhD at UCLA before you dropped out to become a comedian and actor in 1998. That poli-sci background is very evident in your humor, like this skit about Donald Trump. I don't know if you remember, a little while ago he was doing a press conference, and uh, I actually was watching, I felt sorry for him, because he was doing the press conference, for no reason he decided to volunteer some information. Nobody asked him, he just decided, well, I, by the way, I just want everyone to know that I won this election with the most electoral college votes since Ronald Reagan. And the reporter goes, sir, actually, uh, Barack Obama had more electoral college votes than you did. And he goes, okay, fine, but I won with the most electoral college votes for a Republican since Ronald Reagan. And the reporter goes, sir, actually, George Bush Sr. had more electoral college votes than you did. He goes, okay, fine, well, I won with the most electoral college votes for a Republican uh, in this election. Can we agree to that? <laughs> I wish that's what he would have said. What he actually said was, well, someone told me. <laughs> Who told you? Some guy in the bathroom? What the hell? Or this more serious Instagram video you posted following the Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade. So the Supreme Court took away a woman's right to choose. Look, when I say I believe in the right to choose, it doesn't mean I'm encouraging you to go out and get an abortion. It means I believe a woman should have the right to choose. That's simple. This is an attack on women and women's rights, all right? People get abortions for health-related reasons, economic reasons. Maybe they're just not ready to have a baby, but it should be a woman's choice. I've seen this before. In Iran, during the revolution, the first people they took the rights from were women. It was a revolution against women, and then they went after others. So they're coming for you. Clarence Thomas already said they're going to go after gay marriage. They're going to go after contraception. Who knows who they'll go after after that? Maybe they'll go after religious minorities, immigrants. I don't know. But wake up. And if you're watching this going, Ma, stick to comedy. How about you stick to accounting or plumbing or whatever the hell it is you're doing? This is my opinion. I'm an ally of women. Namaste. So do you consider yourself political first and a comedian second? Or is it the other way around? 
No, I'm absolutely a comedian first. I don't want anybody to think that I'm some sort of political leader or, or something like that. I mean, as a matter of fact, when I post serious videos and I just try to take a stand and stand up for what I believe in, I have had people say like, oh, you should think about running for, I don't know, city council or whatever it is. I prefer making fun of the politicians over being a politician because the truth is I don't feel like I have the the drive or maybe even the there's a there's a wheelhouse there's a, there's a certain type of intelligence I think you have to have to be a good politician and I have a comedic intelligence more than I have a politician intelligence that said I've always been a big fan of political humor from guys like Richard Pryor to George Carlin to then John Stewart. Uh, I still, to this day, I pretty religiously watch uh, Stephen Colbert's monologues all the time. If you can tell a joke and have a message underneath it, that's a double whammy. That said, I also like fart jokes. I mean, it's like somebody once asked me, they go, "What you know? how do you feel about representing your people? I said, I don't want to represent anybody because I'm going to disappoint them. You know, it was interesting to me, sorry, during the Trump administration, a lot of Iranians embraced Donald Trump because he basically promised that he's going to get rid of the regime in Iran, which, as you know, a lot of Iranians outside of Iran are against the regime, myself included. I find them to be oppressive, and I want democracy and freedoms for the people of Iran, for women, for LGBTQ, for everybody. I mean, who doesn't want a free society? But... When Donald Trump would say, oh, I'm going to get rid of the regime, he didn't have a plan. He would just say it. And a lot of Iranians bought into it. And so some Iranians who'd been fans of mine got upset that I was criticizing Donald Trump. And that's where I, again, I said, I don't want to represent you. I don't want to represent anybody. I'm representing me. These are my opinions. You don't have to agree with me. We could disagree. And really, my first job is to be funny. And my second job is if I have a message in there that's underneath it, then double whammy. Are there any topics or people you won't joke about? My mother. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> I try to never make fun of someone who I consider like, you know, to, someone who's an underdog based on it wasn't their fault. Right. So, for example, you have somebody who maybe has um, a physical handicap or something. You know, I just wouldn't go there just from since I was a kid. I've always I've always tried to be on the side of the underdog as opposed to make fun of. I start to cringe when I've, I've seen comedians do jokes about some people sometimes who, again, might have a mental illness or, you know, physical illness. I don't like that stuff. I like to I'll make fun of the, you know, anybody who's in the political realm, anyone who's a hypocrite, I, you know, I'm going after. I make fun of myself, you know, part, a big part of, I think, disarming people at my shows is when I show up with my bald head and I start making fun of being bald and I start making fun of being old and all that other stuff that usually disarms people and they go, okay, he's laughing with us, not at us. You've spoken a lot in your memoir, in interviews, about how your parents weren't fans of your career choice, and that your mom even suggested at one point learning something useful like becoming a mechanic. Does your Iranian family appreciate your jokes now that you're successful? Listen, I any kid of immigrant parents, uh, definitely in the U.S., and I'm guessing in Germany as well, will tell you immigrant parents feel like, look, we brought you to this country to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, something successful, something, by the way, that has a secure future that we don't have to worry about you. Like, I try to commiserate and understand my parents. I don't think, like, they were evil to be evil. I just think that they thought, oh, we want you to have a life that's not worrisome, that's pretty consistent. And so... That's what they knew, you know. I mean, Hollywood, 
or being a comedian or any of this stuff is foreign to people that have been here for generations, right? I mean, you'll, you'll hear people once in a while say something like, I saw that movie with Kevin Hart and um, Dwayne Johnson. You should have been in it. As if I could just pick up the phone and be like, hey, you guys are making a movie. Just put me in it. Like, it's, that's just not how it works. <laughs> well, you did um, star with Chuck Norris, right? So <laughs> Yes, I did. Chuck and I, we go way back. Uh, so I think my parents definitely feared what that would bring, this career in comedy and all this stuff. But I just fell in love with it as a kid. I was a big fan of Eddie Murphy. And then I started doing plays in junior high school. And the director was very complimentary. Her name was Shirley Bonbright. And she had told us, I was a background dancer in the seventh grade in a musical. And she said, when you're in a musical, whether your part is big or small, you always need to be smiling when you're dancing. I said, all right. So one day I show up. I'm a little under the weather. I go over. I go, Miss Bonbright, I think I got a cold, but you told me it's an ensemble. Even though my part is small, I'm here. And uh, she goes, all right, great. Go get in your position. So we're in position. I'm smiling. I'm dancing. I'm singing. She stops the whole rehearsal. Everybody stop. Everybody stop. She goes, look at him. Look at him. He's sick. He's here. He's smiling. He's dancing. You got to learn from him. And I was looking around going, oh, wow, she's talking to me. So it was positive reinforcement. And that just made me feel really good on stage. I love being on stage. I feel alive on stage. And so it was this battle that started from there. We'd do a play and my parents would come backstage and the director or the teacher would say, your kids got what it takes. And my parents would say, oh, thank you. And we get in the car and my dad would say, that woman's crazy. Don't listen to her. And it took a while of going back and forth. And it wasn't until I was 26 I had already dropped out of my PhD program. I'd gotten a job in an advertising agency just as an assistant. And it was a light bulb moment where I said, you know, you live once, you got to live for yourself, not to please other people. There was an older gentleman who worked at the ad agency whose name was Joe Ryan. He also encouraged me. He's like, listen, if you really love it, you got to do it. Don't wait. And I was 26. I said, go for it. And that's when I really dove in and I've been doing it for 24 years now. Um, and yeah, I think they came around, you know, my mom was just at the taping of my special and it's funny, people were calling me the next day. Oh, really enjoyed it. Had a good time, this, that. And I was curious to see what she thought. Cause sometimes I'll do a joke and she'll say, you shouldn't talk about that. But I called her and I said, how was it? She go, oh, I had a great time. Oh my God. You know, and I was like, okay, that's good. You know? So she's come around and, um, that's, uh, that's a good thing. You had mentioned before about the Iranian regime and your being opposed to it. And I, I wonder, um, do you worry about visiting Iran given what you do for a living and given the jokes that you make? Are you subject to the threats or even like a fatwa like Salman Rushdie was after he wrote Satanic Verses? Well, I don't think about a fatwa because I haven't really gone that. I mean, I, I haven't done anything that direct for them to come, you know, really put a fatwa. But visiting the country, unfortunately, is an issue because I have friends we both know a lot of times if you're in academia or you're in um, the press or you're a performer, if you have high visibility within our community, there's a possibility you go there and somebody in some agency decides to bother you because, I don't know, they pull up a clip of you doing a joke or I don't know. So because of that, it's unfortunate because the country of Iran, as you know, is beautiful. The people are beautiful. The last time I was there was 20-something years ago, and I would love to be able to go just spend a whole summer travel Iran with my kids and wife and have them see it and have myself see it as an adult. But as you said, the current situation of the government and their continuance of, you know, being unstable, unreliable, right? I've heard of people who had said to me, 
they got an approval from the ministry of so-and-so to go, and then they got there, and another ministry was like, well, we didn't approve you coming, and you're an intellectual, and we're going to you know, interrogate you. So it's really unfortunate. I actually encourage people, whether it's Germans or Americans or whatever, I go, you should try and find a tour and go see Iran. There's beautiful history there. There's beautiful. The people are so gracious. They're so... Um, as you know, hospitable. You know, when I saw the Anthony Bourdain episode of Parts Unknown, he said, he goes, I've traveled the world, but I didn't realize the most hospitable people were going to be the Iranians. And we truly are. And the food's amazing. And there's just so much, but it's a shame. I honestly, yeah, I I can't go because I just don't trust the system right now. Yeah, same here. (laughs) So it's unfortunately, as you said, whether you're in the press or whether you're in academia or whether you're an entertainer, it's unfortunately not a great... Uh, situation. What about threats from the far right movement in the U.S.? I mean, we talk about Iran and other oppressive regimes, but the United States has its fair share of naysayers, too, uh, toward anything different. Yeah, in all honesty, again, I don't think I have come on their radar enough for them to really come after me too much. But there have been, you know, first of all, during the Trump administration, as you know, anybody who's criticizing Trump There was bots on Twitter and there was others on Twitter who would attack you. As you know, the Trump administration actually spent money and had money coming, I think, out of the State Department paying people to go after anybody who was pro-diplomacy with Iran. I'm opposed to the regime. I'm also a proponent of diplomacy simply because I know the other option is war. And in war, a lot of innocent Iranians and some innocent Americans would die in a war. So I feel that if we're able to move forward diplomatically, that would help Iran move towards a more democratic Iran. That's what I feel. But having expressed that, um, once the Trump administration came in and they had guys like Mike Pompeo and John Bolton and all these other hawks, you would get attacked on Twitter anytime you said anything that was remotely pro-diplomacy. And so I was getting some of that. Um, And also, as we both know, I mean, there's a faction of Trump supporters. Well, if you're a Trump supporter, for the most part, it's kind of a cult now. And so there have been times where I would criticize him and I would get somebody again on social media or something telling me like, go back to your country. You know, who are you? You're, you know, washed up and just crazy stuff. The hypocrisy of it all is very interesting because we live in what's supposed to be a democracy. And in a democracy, you should be able to criticize your leader and your leader should be able to handle criticism. And to Maz, all politicians are fair game. Putin may circle Kiev with tanks, but he'll never gain the hearts and souls of the Iranian people. Iranian? Joe, first of all, it's not Iranian, it's Iranian. Secondly, it's not Iranian, it's Ukrainian. We have nothing to do with this. Why are you bringing us into this? Oh my God. But the supporters of people on the far right do not have any tolerance for criticism. And they'll say, go back to Iran. And I'm going, wow, you're acting authoritarian, telling me to go back to Iran, um, as opposed to saying, look, we disagree. You know, you might like certain policies, dislike certain policies, but we should be able to make fun of our leaders. So yeah, I, I got some pushback. Matter of fact, I learned as a stand-up during the Trump administration, his fans were crazy rabid. They won't even listen to what you're saying. I originally had my, in my beginning of my tour, I was going to, this is during the Trump years, I was going to lean into my criticism of Trump. And I was, and I was doing it. And then I ended up one night at the improv here in LA 
doing a joke about Trump, and there was some Iranian immigrant who was pro-Trump, and he started yelling, and I started yelling, and the next thing you know, we're yelling at each other. And I look out at the audience, and they're looking at me like, what happened that your show has been derailed? And I was like, this is not good. So that's when I started calling that tour Peaceful Warrior, and I decided I'm going to Tai Chi the next time somebody comes at me with the Trump stuff. And I got really good at it. Like in this YouTube video Maz mentioned earlier. What's that? As a woman. As a woman. I take offense. Okay. At? What you just did because as a woman. Okay. I have a very different opinion than you. I appreciate you. you. Thank and you very I much. Illegal. Illegal. You're legal I'm what? Paralegal? America. Oh, what? I'm a legal immigrant too. Congratulations. Thank you. Fantastic. Namaste. However, Russell is not legal. <laughs> it's okay. Calm down. I love you. Thank you. Okay. Okay, I hear you. That's fine. That's okay. Relax, guys. Relax. It's okay. Listen, that's fine. That's my whole point. We can talk about it. That's fine. Send me a tweet or something or a Facebook message. We'll have a conversation. I'm serious. What's that? Back at me, thank you. God yeah, bless yeah, you. Thank yeah, you. I love you. Thank you to the same grade level. Yes. I totally okay. enjoyed you. Please. You chose okay. To That's what I just was talking about. Oh, come on. Relax. Please, calm down. Calm down. You guys, relax. You know, everybody, relax. Listen, just calm down. It's almost done. I only have like two more Trump jokes, and then we'll be done. I swear to God. I swear to God. I'm being honest. I'm being. I swear. It was just nuts. And it was all because I had mentioned his name. And I thought I was saying something that was not even that harsh. I was basically commenting on the fact that he won't stop tweeting and how his tweets, when he was still on Twitter, felt like the game Tetris. The blocks just kept coming down and you kept putting them to the side and another one would come and you put it to the side. And it was just like relentless. I feel like somebody who's coming from Iran where the country went religious like religion and politics just shouldn't be together and the religion is what basically started to dictate the laws and it's now a you know it's an islamic republic of iran i feel quite often the people on the right who support trump or support taking away abortion rights or any of those things that they're doing they're trying to install a christian republic of america which is not good. It's far, far from a democratic world that we all want to live in. Well, the global situation is pretty bleak these days, uh, not just with extremism, but climate change, inflation, the Russian war in Ukraine, and a possible second term for Donald Trump. So why is your upcoming tour called Things Are Looking Bright? <laughs> Well, it was called Things Are Looking Bright because it, it actually started, you know, when we tour again, because it's a worldwide tour, you start in, I don't know, it was 2020, maybe it was late 2020 or early 2021. And the idea was, oh, things were starting to look bright coming out of the pandemic, right? We're still in the pandemic, but things were looking bright and that we had the vaccines coming through. To my naive mind, I thought, oh, once the vaccines come, everyone's going to get them and we'll all be great. And of course, that was totally wrong. And even with the tour, it was funny because I feel like I jinxed it. I think it was summer of 2021 when there was like a surge. and It was another surge of some sort. It was Delta or something. And, and I remember 
going, you know, we were trying to sell tickets and people just weren't coming out and I could get it because people didn't want to be in a room filled with a bunch of other people when there's a surge of a pandemic. So I was like, oh, maybe I named it Things Are Looking Bright Too Soon. But it feels now that we are, at least when it pertains to the pandemic, we're moving in the right direction. And I certainly hope that's the case. And look, I mean, the world is always falling apart. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's not good. I think with the inflation, my hope is that the results of the pandemic and the lockdown slowly start to subside. And whenever, like a lot of, I was reading some article about how economists and, and people in the financial world are waiting for it to just hit its bottom. So, cause they know that at that point it's going to start to come back. I feel that's, believe it or not, that's like the least of our worries, the inflation. I think the biggest one that it just hasn't struck a lot of people yet is the global warming that you were just talking about because that's huge. And of course, human beings are so self-centered that unless if their house is flooding, they're going to be like, no, it's fine. You know, So I think that's coming. And then the Trump thing, 2024, I honestly don't see a world in which he would win. And it's not about him whether winning or not. I think it's the, the bigger threat is the fact that he continues to be able to just, you know, spew lies and be out there. Um, but I don't think it's going to end well for him. I mean, I feel like, geez, he probably isn't getting a lot of sleep these days because whether you like it or not, he's got all these investigations. And somebody said something that I agree with, and I, I maybe I'll be proved wrong, but they were saying, you know, he's such a fraudster that the current money he's taking in, he can use for anything. If he declares for 2024, he's got to start using that money for the campaign. And so I think the only reason he might claim that he's going to, you know, announce his run is if there's some sort of loophole that keeps him out of legal trouble. But other than that, I kind of feel like he may keep the money and try to be a kingmaker and, you know, kind of divert in that way and say, oh, you know, I, I'm going to support Ron DeSantis and I'll be in the back whatever. I, that's what I think. I'm, I'm not as worried about him as I am about the movement, as about the... Because even if he were to go away, this movement exists. And you and I both know that, and I'm sure it's in Germany as well, a lot of it is a, a fear of losing power, of white people losing power and immigrants taking over. And, you know, I think that the bigger issue is a battle of the haves and the have-nots. It's rich versus poor rather than black versus white. But unfortunately, rich white people have convinced poor white people that they're on their side, when in reality they're not. They're on a yacht somewhere in Mykonos sunbathing and asking white, you know, poor whites to storm capitals for them. Well, I want to wrap it up with uh, this one last question. Um, tell me something about Maz Jobrani that no one knows. <laughs> Gosh, one thing that I I want to be I want to be a rock star. Like I've always and my, I might have mentioned this somewhere else before because people will say, "What would you do if you weren't this rock star?" I love like there's actually a show. There's a comedian named Josh Adam Myers. He put together a show. Um, it's called the Goddamn Comedy Jam, and he gets comedians to come and tell a few jokes, and then we sing. And it's one of my favorite things. And because we, we have a live band, we have a live band behind us, and we get to scream. Yeah, I want to be a rock star. I don't know if I have the endurance for it because I watch like Mick Jagger even at whatever his age is, 150, just running around that stage. And I'm going, God, how does he do it? 
Because when I do, when we do our show, we sing one song, and I'm exhausted after the end of the first song. Because you're, because you're jumping up and down and screaming into a mic and dancing and singing. But yeah, if I ever had, gosh, if one of these young rock stars became a friend of mine one day and said, "Hey, Maz, you want to come out and sing the next time I'm doing my fifty thousand seat performance? You know, you that song of mine that you love. You want to come sing with me?" I would be like, "Uh, yeah." So that's my. That's what people need to know. I want to be a rock star. <laughs> well, thank you, Maz. I look forward to seeing you in Berlin in a few weeks. I do, too. I'm really looking forward to it. I've heard amazing things about um, all these cities. And my only um, regret is that I won't be able to spend a lot of time there. But I'm looking forward. And the show's in English. Please <laughs> remember the show's in English. Stop emailing me. <laughs> Yes, it's it's in English with German subtitles. That's what we'll tell them. German so. <laughs> subtitles. So thank you so much. And thank you for listening to Common Ground Berlin. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed. Our social media editor is Stefano Montali. And I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Common Ground Berlin is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. Our partners are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Goethe Institute. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CG Berlin Podcast. If you are on Apple, we'd love for you to write a review on Common Ground Berlin. You can also subscribe to and rate our podcast on Spotify. And be sure to check out our website, commongroundberlin.com. <laughs>